0: Alright, welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode we do our best to try to unpack some of the major themes and ideas in a piece of writing. Uh, Today we're looking at Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson was an American transcendentalist, philosopher, writer, lecturer, essayist, who was kicking around in the 1800s. I believe this piece was written in 1841. Today, helping me unpack this essay was my friend john lindinger we had what i thought was a great conversation about authenticity the true self the false self the courage it takes to listen to ourselves envy uh, all kinds of stuff that emerson gets into so without any further ado here is my conversation with john on self-reliance So you had read Emerson before. Had, had you read this essay before?
1: I have read this essay, I believe, the first time encountering it was 2016, maybe. Okay. But I didn't really grasp a lot because this is my second read now. I didn't grasp as much because it's the same physical copy. So I was able to see my actual highlights from 2016. And I had missed a significant amount of information, uh, which is very refreshing because it shows me I've intellectually grown, I hope Um, so yeah, yeah, I've read it in the past at least once.
0: It is cool to like, see where your mind was, you know, at different Mm -hmm. times,
1: because
0: there's either things that maybe were like more relevant to you in 2016 Mm -hmm. or yeah, Mm -hmm. like you said, you just like, you know, hadn't maybe like reached the stage of development where some of the things that he said were actually like making sense.
1: Right. I know at least when I initially uh, started to transition into like philosophy and like deeper, like prolific or intellectually stimulating works like this uh, and out of like self-help, very practical, like surface level water down stuff. When yeah. I first made that transition, I was subconsciously looking for like quotes, I think. I think that's how I was like training my mind to scan a book. I would like just blow through a page. And then if I saw like a particularly powerful adjective, I'd be like, hold on, what is that adjective connected to? Is it connected to like a, a short, concise, powerful statement? Let me highlight that. That's a quote. Sometimes I would see actual quotes that I've heard other authors or speakers say in paper and I'd be like, oh, that's where it came from. That So that would make sense. And I think that's kind of the way I was reading this book in 2016, because I do th- things I do have highlighted. They're very concise. You know, they're very potent. They're like mm. some of his most famous, uh, famously quoted lines. Um, and they're not really – they're taken without their context, which kind of diminishes them a little bit, I think. So yeah. I was able to, I was able to, to um, grasp them in a more comprehensive way this time around.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, a lot of times quotes – I mean, they're nice because they, like, distill an idea into, mm-hmm. like, a very efficient, you know, mm-hmm. couple-word passage. Yep. But yeah, I guess if you yeah, if you don't have like the broader context, it can just you don't really like I guess one of the quotes that I had heard before before I read this essay was um uh imitation is suicide. Right. And I think that could mean a lot of things if you don't mm-hmm. know kind of what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um and it's one of those things I just heard in passing and never really thought about. Um but yeah, maybe we could, I don't know, maybe start with that idea a little bit. So he talks about imitation is suicide. And the way I, I kind of read it is he's saying, you know, we have this inclination to want to imitate those around us or imitate those who came before. And, you know, and, and maybe even the worst case scenario of this would be somebody who's just like... Just kind of like regurgitating something that somebody else said or just kind of like um, you know taking what somebody else said and not really putting their own spin on it. Um, Mm -hmm. But he gets to the point of like you are never going to be – you're never going to outdo the person that you're quoting from or in the Mm -hmm. sense that like you're never going to be more Shakespeare than Shakespeare or you're never going to like outdo Nietzsche at his own game. So mm-hmm. if your goal is to kind of just like, you know, take from these masters and try to like, you know, just just be a version of them, like it's a losing game. In, in mm-hmm. that way, imitation is suicide. But the game yeah. that you can win is the game of you and everybody, me, you, everyone out here, we all have our own uh, – <laughs> Our, you know, our own unique gifts, our own unique life experience, our own subjective view on the world. Mm-hmm. And there's something about each one of us that makes us special and that separates us from everybody else.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I got I got the sense that Emerson was saying, like, look, you're not going to beat somebody at their own game. Or as right. as Oscar Wilde would say, like, um, I believe he has a quote like, uh just be you, because everybody else is taken. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of that same sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What, do you, what did you think about that idea, or or also, what did you think about um, imitation is suicide? That quote. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious
1: how you you read it or interpreted it. Yeah, yeah. So there's a multitude of points attached to that. Um, the first is that, you know, like you're saying, you're never going to be more Shakespearean than Shakespeare. You're mm-hmm. not going to outdo somebody at their own game. This is also operating under the uh, assumption that what they choose to portray to you is the inherent nature of themselves, right? So it's like I can portray a certain version of myself, I can wear a mask, I can overemphasize or overexaggerate some of my faculties or or tendencies to you, and you can get a fabricated image or a a distorted image, rather, of what I present, and you can take that home with you and say, wow, I wish I was like that. And that's assuming I am consistent in public and private. So that's also a very big assumption. That's not always a given. That's a very big variable. Um, The second idea is you're absolutely right. There's so many variables in every single individual life. Not only uh, biologically, but also like in terms of circumstances, in terms of uh, the, the resources that you have, in terms mm-hmm. of what access you have to information or your, your genetic traits or your intellectual faculties. All of these things amalgamate into inherently what makes you you. And a lot of us, this is a, a big part of this, like the underlying narrative of this essay. A lot of us are inherently scared to just show that color to the world. There's yeah. a lot of reasons for that, I think. And he goes into several of them, which we'll get into in a minute. Mm-hmm. But um, before I get too lost forward, I want to back up to the, There's a preceding point that I actually have highlighted yeah. to the paragraph of uh, Envious Ignorance, Imitation, and Suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's more related to Envious Ignorance. And the quote is as follows. He says, in every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. That's very interesting. And I interpreted this to mean like, Maybe the I, I look at the word genius as interchangeable with like let's say just achievement or greatness in, in some regard. Mm-hmm. So in every work of greatness, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. What could that mean? I look at it as let's say I see somebody who is very successful in a area that maybe I envy because he's as Emerson is saying, envy is ignorance. Maybe yeah. I envy somebody because they're very rich or they don't have to work another day in their life or they're very financially independent. Whatever the case is, and why it would be why we reflecting my own rejected thoughts at me would be that I once entertained some sort of this causal link that would have got me those final circumstances. Right. Totally. So it's like back up that person, rich person, 10, 15 years ago, they might have been in the same circumstances as me. If I were paying attention to my circumstances in front of me, I could put my head on work and get those results. That's kind of how I how I I interpret it to mean like our own alienated majesty, because we're depersonalizing our own thoughts because Mm. we don't truly know who we are, Uh, because a major reason why he also goes into this. We don't spend enough time in solitude, which is a big thing with Thoreau as well, who they they very um, transcendentalist movement. There's a lot of congruences with like solitude, the inherent the inherent power of the individual and the potentiality of society, uh, like continually degrading that out of the individual. And I think there's a lot of reasons, uh, for that. Yeah. But it's a very, it's a very powerful sentiment as he's saying. Um, there's a time in every man's, I actually, I actually did funny enough, a very deliberate, like dive into this particular paragraph before like there's a time in every man's education where he arrives at the conviction envy is ignorance imitation is suicide so that's predicated on a lot of ideas that first of all um every man's education which means deliberate education if you look depending on how deep you want to take that particular sentence education the root word educo means to develop from within to draw out from yourself doesn't mean from external stimulus it means education from right. inside well and that's so a good a of-
0: good point yeah. well i was gonna say that's a good point because i think probably most people including myself when we think of education you know we're thinking of learning facts or or reading other people's books and that's that's not what he means here actually he mm-hmm. spends a right. lot of this essay kind of attacking that yeah. form of education
1: yeah
0: so yeah, yeah but but yeah Sorry to, to cut you off.
1: No, it's continue. fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's, it's, it's often conflated with that. Mm-hmm. Um, like exogenous, I would almost argue, indoctrination sometimes instead of education. Um, and the second part of that sentence is equally as powerful. He arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance. It's not like a vague hope. It's not like a ethereal, like, I have an inclination that envy is bad. It's No, envy is ignorance because it's, it's it's completely jettisoning and discrediting all of those variables we just talked about. And it's ignoring all of that. and It's ignoring all of the variables the other person has. And it's saying, I want to be that person. And it's when you do that, you are immediately cutting off all of your variables. You're immediately cutting off all of the causal factors from from cause and effect from the time you were born, even preceding your life. You could argue, too, with your parents, grandparents, etc. You're cutting all of that off. And you're just saying you're burning that wick you're burning those strings dry you're just trying to jump on another timeline it doesn't work like that so that's right. why i think it's like symbolic to represent suicide because you're ending that that link. Mm. you're trying to
0: yeah i like that a lot yeah in in the idea of comparing yourself with another person it like that endeavor is a, it's you, you're set up for failure before you even start cuz like mm. you said mm. it's it's not a one to one uh mm thing you know we we could go through you know thousands of variables that distinguish you know okay are we going to compare just my um you know my painting to van gogh's painting or are we going to compare also my um you know mental health status or how much wealth that i have you know we can keep kind of go down this list and yeah if you're trying to just compare yourself in one area it's just Mm -hmm. it's not the right comparison Um, yeah. And I also like what you said about, uh, you know, a lot of times when we feel that feeling of envy, it is, it's because we've, we've had maybe even, maybe it was something that was in passing or that we weren't conscious of it, but somewhere in our head there, there is that thought of like, man, I could have been that person. Exactly. You know, or, Or I'm seeing that person do something that I really want to do or that I really wanted to do. And you know Mm -hmm. what? They're doing it. And that Mm -hmm. makes me feel a certain way. And um, it's funny, actually, the last uh, podcast we read Montaigne, and he said something along the lines of, if you see somebody who is like super successful and they are like of the same skill as you – Mm-hmm. You will automatically, like, tear them down.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that it kind of gets into the same thing because, you know, say here I am working my nine-to-five job, and I see somebody out there who's, like, super famous doing something that, uh, you know, I'm just as capable of doing, but I mm-hmm. I didn't go after it. Mm-hmm that makes me kind of confront that person and say, oh, that person sucks. They're a hack. Like, you know, they're they're not good. Uh, but really, like, their skill level might actually be the same as mine. But the reason that I'm kind of coming down on them with all that brute force is because of that, like, envy and that, um, mm-hmm. you know, that mirror that has been held up in front of me.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think that's a very good indication of, like, people's character, too. Because you could just as – easily you could argue that phenomenon could just as easily elicit admiration and not envy hmm. so that's a very good distinction it's like if you see someone that could inspire hope within you to just say wow he's no different than me i'm gonna go that's gonna encourage me and inspire me to do more whereas a lot of people i think and i've definitely noticed a pattern in myself I'm not projecting but a lot of people i think have this susceptibility to just automatically like express that as project like projecting uh, a negative um manifestation of that phenomenon to say envy to say bitterness to say jealousy mm. to attack other facets of their character oh they might be richer than me but they're not in better shape than me oh they might be this but i'm better than it's like comparing like that i think it's to to make yourself feel, feel superior in one way because your ego has been attacked from that level of like from that discrepancy of you guys have the same skill but the circumstances and results do not match
0: totally well and i've i've also noticed in myself That my ability to feel um, like happy for somebody versus feeling jealous or envious of them has Mm -hmm. more to do with my own kind of where I am in my life. Or kind of, you know, if I'm living in a place of kind of fear and lack or a place of scarcity, I'm much more kind of prone towards jealousy or envy. But if mm-hmm. I'm kind of living in a state of abundance, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm kind of happy with myself, and I'm happy with where I am in my life, when I see somebody else succeeding, I'm more likely right. to be like, "Fuck yeah, man! Like, good for you." Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting because it I, I think some of it has to do with the person and where they are, mm-hmm. you know, looking
1: out on that other person. Yeah, um, absolutely. And be, before we before we leave this one yeah. point, this is probably. This line just like shook me when I read it. This mm-hmm. is immediately after the in, in every work of genius we recognize that one of rejected thoughts. Um, Emerson says, Great works of art have no more affecting lesson for us than this. So essentially, this is the purpose of great works of art. They teach us to abide by our spontaneous impression. Like, so I look at that as to not censor, not attenuate, not enervate, not dampen, not adulterate your inherent. Uh, like expressions or, or inspiration when you see something. So, I think that's the discrepancy between the responses of this. So, like, if you see somebody like wildly successful or like pr- prolific in their own regard or very, very competent and you are inspired to, again, what does he say? Um, abide by your spontaneous impression. What would the impression be? I would think, honestly. Achievement, aspiration, ambition, motivation—I think that's the inherent spontaneous uh, impression. But a lot of people neglect that; they repress it, and I think mm. that manifests in envy, jealousy, bitterness, attacking their character, etc. So I think that's a very good statement. Great works of art teach us to abide by our spontaneous impression.
0: Yeah. No, that's yeah, that that's that's really good. He he also kind of gets into the. And this is maybe a. A tangential idea but he, he gets into the the idea that you know sometimes so so one one reaction when we see great works or other people doing great things is to feel envy or, or to, f- to feel that but another thing is to feel intimidated and to kind of feel like oh shit man like i like who am i to to try to um create something or to try to write something you know after reading shakespeare like how how can i mm-hmm. even write anything like that's going to be that mm-hmm. good to kind of have this feeling of like despair at mm-hmm. like questioning like your own ability and mm-hmm. he talks a lot about this like this courage that it takes to to create to kind of throw your hat into the ring and one of the the lines that i really liked is he he talks about how All of these great people who who you and I admire, they all at one time or another had the same feelings and had Mm. had to overcome it. So whether, you know, say we're looking at Shakespeare, there was a point in Shakespeare's life where he was thinking, man, who am I to write anything like I'm not Montaigne or, you know, I'm not, you know, whoever he was, you know, Voltaire, like he had to say, all right, like. I got to push that aside and, mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, realize, yeah, maybe I'm not, I'm not at the skill level of, of my, of my mentors and, and the geniuses yet, but like my voice is still worth sharing with the world.
1: And, uh, Absolutely. I'm looking down cause I'm, I'm trying to find a um, specific line that beautifully encapsulates that point Hmm. he's talking about the distinction between meanness he calls it and uh, greatness or something like this Um, it's somewhere in here distinction between okay I have it it's one of the points okay what I must do that is all that concerns me not what people think this Hmm. rule equally arduous in actual and intellectual life may serve for the whole distinction not part of but the whole distinction between greatness and mediocrity so, like, just doing what you are given to do. So, in this example, you were just using Shakespeare. Like, that was yeah. his calling. That was his immediate, um, spontaneous impression. As we said, the, with the response of the great works of art, he had some inspiration. He had some inclination, some ambition, some nerve to uh, want to go out and write this. But yes, he had these thoughts. I think those thoughts are normal. I think they're just biologically conditioned. Uh, they are innately intertwined with our 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 consciousness. Oh, right. You could argue. Um, but, again, he didn't concern himself with these opinions. He didn't concern himself with the self-doubt, the, the potentiality for failure. He just did his work. He did his duty. And I think that, uh, again, in, in Emerson's words, is the entire distinction between greatness and mediocrity. I so thought that was a really powerful one.
0: Totally. Yeah, that may be like inferiority complex if we wanted to kind of put a label on on maybe what that that is. And uh, there's a quote here, too. He says, God will not have his work made manifest, manifest by, by cowards, cowards. <laughs> yeah, <that> was, <laughs> which, yeah, that that's was a awesome. that's a powerful line that as well.
1: One,
0: yeah. Um, mm. And, yeah, I mean, that that's one that's just like. It, it doesn't matter how great you are. You could be the mm. most talented person in the world mm. if you don't if you lack the courage to actually do something or make something of your ideas or to externalize your work in some way, like Mm -hmm. nobody's going to see that or that thing is never going to get created. Uh, So, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to courage because Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, we can use Shakespeare. We can use anybody. I'm I'm sure there were, there have been in history, other people with the genius of Shakespeare who maybe lacked the courage to write a play or you know mm-hmm. to to create whatever work that is so you have to i think what he's saying here is you have to have both you have to not mm-hmm. only um you ha- not have to not only have something to say but you mm-hmm. also have to have the courage to say it
1: absolutely absolutely and i think yeah. you, you, your your first three sentences they were all along the lines of creation you said you have to make something you mm-hmm. have to externalize you have to create That is a extremely important distinction, so much so I I reserved an entire discussion to this particular topic about like creating um, or what I described it as is like the the discrepancy between criticizing and complaining. So a lot of people, they obviously they have their own inherent beliefs, their thoughts, their ideas, but they don't want to be criticized. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. a lot of reasons behind this. Again, I think a lot of it is biological. Some of it is enforced by society, but what have you. A lot of people have these ideas, but they're afraid to speak them because of criticism. And what they will do instead, they will like adopt this pseudo-intellectual mask of playing a contrarian. So, for example, if you espouse a point, if you just inherently speak what's on your mind, you speak your beliefs as raw as possible on whatever subject it could be. It could be politics. It could be wealth, whatever it is. And all I do, it's very, very insidious people do this. If all I do is just, first of all, critique your points, or this is even more intellectually lazy is I just provide the alternative. I just flip it on its head and I say, okay, if you say one, I say negative one. If you say 10, I say negative 10. Mm. I'm not creating anything. Mm. That is a process of deduction. I'm not actually espousing my own beliefs. I'm not putting anything on the line and I'm just like inverting. The color of your argument and saying what about this i'm not creating anything and further even if that even if like my inversion of your argument um gets attacked i have no connection to it i can be like oh i was just saying what if right so therefore i'm kind of saving myself with this mask mm. with this barrier of like if somebody attacks it if it's criticized if it's Incontrovertibly false. If it's just not true, somebody can attack it, and I'd be like, "Oh, whatever. It's not mine anyway. I'm just flipping his argument." Oh, okay. What about another theory? So I drew this mm-hmm. distinction to mean like, it's fine if people don't agree on something, but if you criticize something without providing an alternative that is original, that is your own, it is nothing more than complaining, and that's not that's not <laughs> right, useful in right. any conversation.
0: Right. Well, it it reminds me of um. There's there's a book called The Artist's Way by this woman Julia Cameron, and she makes the point that a lot of critics, and art critics in particular, are blocked creatives. So people who, yeah, for one reason or another, you know, either lacked the courage or, or whatever, decided to decided to not create, have kind of put themselves in a place to, to just judge. Judge the art without actually create without actually creating anything themselves, and I, I think it's an easier thing to do. It's easier to to watch a movie and say like, "Oh, that movie sucked because Is of blah blah sucked? blah." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, "Oh man, yeah, the new uh, Marvel movie, like it sucked because right. of this." The right. well, it's like you make your own movie, like exactly. <laughs> you know, but it's much harder to. And, and I think she also makes the point that. The people, the artists or the people who are creating, they realize that it's hard to create and it's hard to, uh, you know, make art or make movies or whatever domain we're talking about. And a lot of times they are much kind of nicer when it comes to critiquing other people's art and work, you know? So it, it is a fascinating thing. Like when you look at, when you look at the most critical people, they a lot of times are they a lot of times are not doing the thing that they're critiquing mm-hmm. so like a lot of times it's not like other movie makers who are super critical of movie makers it's like somebody who's exactly. not a movie maker who is like oh yeah. that sucks i could do better
1: <laughs> yeah but, but they never do
0: but yeah. the people that actually do it i think you gain a certain respect cuz you mm-hmm. you maybe start off with that that kind of like maybe arrogant attitude of like, oh, mm-hmm. this sucks. I, I could do better. And then you start mm-hmm. making your own movies and you start to gain like, oh, shit, this is actually really hard. Right. And you start to get a little softer in your your criticism. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that was how <laughs> – I, I can definitely identify with that with writing for me. Mm-hmm. I think before I started writing myself, when I would read books – Especially mm-hmm. shitty books, I would, I would just, mm-hmm. yeah, I was super critical. And then I started mm-hmm. writing. I was like, writing's hard, man. Mm-hmm. So now, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I think it softened my, um, softened my, uh, my, my
1: critic yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and and it's like. I I wouldn't even say softened. I I don't even know if that's, that's necessarily the most, uh, like appropriate word. I think it's more so that it's like, you're just putting things into more proper perspective. So Mm. I think the person who's like overtly critical, overtly, just like a contrarian, overtly just deductive and attacking everything, they'll never validate anything. Um, that's coming from, it's like you were saying earlier, it's a lot of, it's just a place of, you're not at peace with yourself somewhere. In your journey of creation, your your journey of being a screenwriter or or, or, uh, artist, author, whatever. And they're projecting from that space onto the other canvas, no pun intended, um, of a person. And they're doing that, uh, again, to try to feel a sense of satisfaction for creating something when again it's not it's just flipping the argument and saying oh an alternative would be like what if the hero did this in the movie instead instead and said i think that'd be a better idea and it's like that's their way of getting like tertiary satisfaction because they couldn't do it from an original work so they have to do something they have to look at something criticize it work deductively and then provide an alternative but that's not necessarily original right mm. and that requires no courage and again if it falls no blame is on them. They're not taking anything for that. So I think it's th- if there's no risk in that, there there can never be any reward. Totally, totally,
0: yeah. And he, he uh, Emerson gets a lot. He 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 goes a lot about like a lot of this essay is about. It's about you know he gives his reasons why we should kind of trust ourselves, but he also spends a lot of time just like unpacking all the reasons <laughs> why we don't. So we kind of got into like. Um, you know there's there's this envy that gets brought up we kind of feel intimidated or lack the courage to start to start um, another one he, he kind of gets into is we have this fear of contradicting ourselves and I think he calls it consistency we have this need to be consistent with the people we were yesterday and that you know, if I've kind of presented myself to the world in mm-hmm. in one way, and you know, maybe I've said certain things up until this point. If today my kind of true self, you know, my my inner constitution is telling me another thing, mm-hmm. I might uh, I might abandon or not listen to that voice because it's not consistent with this uh, this person that I have been up until this point. And he gets all he he goes as far as to say don't worry about that. Like don't worry about contradiction. Which this kind of this kind of baffled me. Um I maybe not the idea as much as how strongly he he puts it. Uh and maybe I'll pull up some quotes, but he here we go. He says, A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. And then later he says, speak what you think now in hard words and tomorrow what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, Mm -hmm. though it contract everything you said today, or excuse me, though it contradict everything you said today.
1: Yeah. So it definitely is interesting. Um, I, I, I am on the same page with him on it. For the reason that, like, as you're saying, I think the words you use, a particular verbiage, you said as you present yourself in some way versus as your inner true constitution of your nature. So it's like presenting yourself that almost like implicitly implies versus through the language that you use validation or attention or affirmation from other people, from outside source. Mm. Right. So it's like you're saying publicly, like, oh, I, be- I believe in this. This is the right way to do something. This is what I believe. This is what I believe to be true. This is the best way to do this.
0: Yeah. And then in
1: private, you're learning, you're studying, you're introspecting, you're, you're doing all this self-analysis, you're going, you're undergoing character change. Um, I think it's it's intellectually honest to potentially change different routes, because yeah. that shows you have either grown, that shows you've looked at something from a different perspective. It shows a more comprehensive life world view. Mm. on something. So, and, and I think this, this made me think of a quote or like a saying, an axiom, I don't know who said it, but it's like, if you, if you always speak the truth, you never have to remember anything. I, I always love the mm. idea behind because you don't mm. have to uphold an image of something that you told somebody a week ago because you were lying or you wanted to exaggerate some sort of your, some, yeah. some aspect of your character or a faculty or whatever it happened to be. If you always just show up as you are in public and private, Uh, And just say what you believe as he's saying. um, What does he say? Something with like cannonballs. Um, Yeah, words as hard as cannonballs and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, even if it contradicts itself. Regardless, you're showing Mm -hmm. up as your most authentic self in every single present moment. I think it's a very, very difficult way to live. But I do think it's very admirable. I think it's very noble. And I think it's very mature and intellectually honest to do that. Because like I said, you're not going to believe one thing and just retain that belief uh until yeah. you are, you know, old age, unless you're just operating a, under a lot of cognitive biases and confirmation right. bias. Kind of like.
0: Right. Well yeah, and and I think he's aware of, you know, before we he he didn't know about cognitive biases, but well, he he knew about cognitive biases, but, but maybe not uh, you know, they hadn't been uh, verified by science right. it, yet, right. but he was he was very aware that uh, there is this consistency bias that we all have, which is to be consistent with the people that we've been before. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I was uh, thinking about when you were you're talking was, so we have this need to to be consistent with you know the person we've been in the past and and be consistent <laughs> with the things we've said in the past, but. There is also something he talks about where we should strive to kind of be the same person around everybody or try to be our our real self or our authentic self, not only in solitude, but also in society. And um, I think that's one thing that, that is very difficult. I think he says at one right. point, um, he says something like it's, it's easy to, uh, be yourself in solitude and it's mm. easy to, to do the things Live that just says- the
1: world as when you're with people, but this true something genius keeps the sweet balance of both or something. I know what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. So he's saying it, you know, it's, it's easy to do while you're by yourself. It's easy to be yeah. your authentic self when there's nobody around you know but can you do it amongst other people and i think that's the real that's the real question the real challenge mm-hmm. um because and this got me thinking a lot i've i've been thinking a lot about celebrities lately and and influencers and just kind of how how strange of an existence that is mm-hmm. and i think part of the reason is not saying it's true for all of them, but in a lot of these instances, they're having to kind of – they're having to kind of like play a part, and they're having to kind of like be a false self for the world or for the camera. So there's this kind of like cognitive dissonance where it's like, okay, when I'm alone by myself, kind of like Netflix chilling, I'm this way, but when you know my social media – you know my selfie stick goes on i'm this like peppy like yeah. youtuber or or whoever and yeah it creates this like it creates this weird cognitive dissonance
1: mm-hmm. and
0: he he even says something along the lines of like anytime you act inconsistently inconsistently with your own self or your true self or your true constitution you move further and further away from it and you start to lose you start to lose who you actually are. Um, and he also says the reverse of that, of that, like each time we act in an authentic way, we kind of confirm more and more who we are and move closer and closer to that. Um, but I don't know. I I, I I think about that a lot as well because um, I know personally I don't, I don't think I have any issue being myself. Um, around, you know, when I'm alone or just around a bunch of people I really know well, but sometimes it's hard when you're, you know, you know, it's like you're on a date with somebody and you, uh, you want the person to like you, you, you kind of find yourself like, oh shit, I'm starting to say things that maybe are not in alignment with who I am. Or it's like, oh, you know, there's, you know, a different motivation in like, oh, I want to sleep with this girl. So I'm going to, I'm yeah. gonna kind of present who I think she wants to see, but he right. would say, "You, when you do that, you move further and further away from your true self, and you start to lose mm-hmm. yourself in the process." Mm-hmm. But I don't know. What do, you, what do you think of that idea?
1: Yeah, so there. That's actually a. I had a. Uh, I had a few annotations here um, on this point, and similar to your um, like account of when you're not feeling you know, successful or competent or like you're succeeding in your realms, you'll then project on other people. Mm -hmm. I've done this same thing. It's a very uh, or has been a very detrimental pattern. I've done a lot of work on it um, with like internal versus external validation. Mm -hmm. So when I can't or I I have a hard time validating myself or giving myself appreciation or praise or saying, yeah, you did a good job, like pat myself in the back um, as a precedent, it's very, I have a less I have a lower propensity to do that because I have very very high standards of myself from a lot of inherent conditioning things uh, but nonetheless if I have that very high standard of myself and I don't meet it I think the psyche still needs some type of offense uh, att- uh, like affection attention validation of some sort so when I can't validate myself I find myself gravitating toward like furtively and very very insidiously, Trying to do things to get validation from other people, mm. like pointing out my achievements, pointing out something I did I did really well, like steering the conversation to make it about me. Mm. If somebody brings up an example of something, I'll retaliate or I'll respond with an example of my version of that story. Like if someone says, oh, this thing happened to me, I said, oh, that reminds me of when this happened to me. Like, that's a weird way of making the conversation about me. I'll, I've noticed myself doing that when I'm in periods of my life like under a lot of stress or I can't validate myself or I'm not doing as well as I want to be where I'm not as competent as I want to be in a particular realm and if I don't validate myself, I'll find myself doing that in other people but um, You with, with with rudimentary observation, you'll conclude. It's very shallow It's very transitory no matter how many people do it No matter how many people validate you no matter how successful you get at doing this even if they're not aware It's never penetrating. It doesn't actually get below the skin level Um, So it's not truly rewarding. It's not truly fulfilling for you, um, no matter how much external validation you get. And I think there's a lot of um, a lot of issue with that today with social media and like the projected idea of reality, this false self, as you're saying, with these influencers, with celebrities and a lot of them behind the scenes are just like miserable, lonely, Mm. isolated, uh, you know. So, well,
0: I think. I like what you said that it's, it's kind of a a shallow victory or a hollow victory, even because if, you know, you're portraying this false persona, this false self to a person, you know, say we'll use the, the influencer example. Mm. So I'm kind of portraying this, like, I don't know. I just when I think of the kind of fake, fake personality. I think of the kind of like, everything's positive. Everything's awesome. And, you know, I'm not saying that isn't true of, that isn't a true persona but but maybe for some people let's say in this example this person is is not that person they're portraying this person okay and they start receiving this positive feedback from the world you know they start getting all these likes and these people you know commenting on their posts it's a shallow victory in the sense that like even though they're getting all of this uh positive attention they they're getting it uh their false self is the one getting it So it still feels, it still feels crappy. And and to use for me to use maybe the dating example, I've had this happen where, um, you know, especially I think in my mid twenties when I didn't really know who I was, uh, you know, not that I, not that I do now, but (laughs) I feel like I'm closer. Um, I, I would get women to like, I would get women to like me but they would like this kind of false me. Mm-hmm. And even though they would really like me or fall in love with me, it still, it felt hollow and it felt empty because it was right. like, oh, they like this other person, but that's not actually, that's not actually me. Mm-hmm. So I think like, like you said, even if you're successful at it, mm-hmm. it's still not going to fulfill you. Right. Yeah. And it,
1: it's, it's the, it's another expression of this idea of what I was talking about earlier with like the contrary and how somebody just like Mm. fabricates an argument out of your argument in a, in a work of deduction. Yeah. And like, it can get attacked, it can get praised, but it's like, they're still just at a distance. Like they're tethered to it vaguely, Mm. but it's not truly them. And like they they can keep their distance, even if they want to get close, even if you did like want to, you know, pursue things with that person, you have to radically shift. Uh, you know your your partner or your girlfriend's paradigm on like okay I was portraying a false image of this or like I was exaggerating at least at the, the, the very yeah. least degree this is my truer self so then you could move closer to that and like I guess dispense with that buffer that you have between you and her a lot of times people fabricate that buffer out of like fear uh, or out of being hurt or criticism or whatever it has or w- whatever have you so there's a lot of Facets that this phenomenon can express itself through like living mm. distanced through society. We live in this like this this thick like bubble and we're tethered to the outside world, but only through like this filtration of a mask um, and emerson beautifully hits, hits so many of these points and he's saying like we realize how much we do it when we're in solitude um i had yeah. a quote oh yeah. somewhere um these are the voices which we hear in solitude but they grow faint and ina- ina- in and inaudible as we enter the world um society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members Mm. um and then he concludes with the virtue in most request is conformity self reliance is its aversion so in in solitude we reveal who we are to ourselves because we have no external or exogenous influence to tell us who we are there Mm. was a line somewhere in here where he was talking about like a lot of people don't know who they are they don't know what they think they don't know what they believe their beliefs change as often as the newspapers i think his line was Um, and that's a life that is extremely dangerous because it's a life that is governed by pure proximity Mm. meaning that you are only you are a product of all of these some constituents of all of your phenomena in your in your environment so like your friends, your your the TV shows you watch, the music you listen to, the podcast or books you do or don't read, uh, what you subject to yourself voluntarily or involuntarily, all of that amalgamation becomes who you are. I think it's very dangerous because especially today with social media, the odds are going back to this example of like envious, ignorance, imitation is suicide. You have so many variables that make you you. The odds are that you going out into the world Finding the exact ingredients you need, the exact information, the exact advice, the exact mentorship, the exact friendships, the exact associations, resources, career, job, girlfriend, whatever, all of that just left a chance that is never going to happen. So Mm -hmm. in solitude, I think that's when I I would would self-define this as like a life by design. It's asking yourself, what do I truly want? And then once you do that as a precedent, you then engage with society, but it's more deliberate. It's living deliberately, as Thoreau, his, his predecessor, would say. Um, and you have a reason for, I guess, interacting with all that you do. And without going too far on the tangent, I want to read a quote that's, that made me, it, when I read this particular passage, it made me think of this quote from Pascal. So Pascal is too very, uh, uh, Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, he has two very powerful ideas on this, on this particular subject. Mm. First is that he says, all man's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. Yeah, that was a very powerful statement. The second one was, he says, for nothing could be more wretched than to be intolerably depressed as soon as one is reduced to introspection with no means of diversion. So nothing is Mm. more wretched than if you get depressed when you are basically in the company of yourself without your phone, without TV, without social media, without talking to somebody, just sitting with yourself. If you are intolerably depressed, that is the most wretched thing in his eyes. Um so I think this is a very prominent issue today that a lot of us don't know what why we are engaging with what we are engaging in. So if you look at your life very meticulously, I've been criticized for doing it like overly analytical in, in a way, but like I'll have a reason for everything that I do. In terms of like my outside in- input if you ask me why are you reading that book? I'll have an answer for you Why am I hanging out with that person? I want to have an answer like oh, mm-hmm. they're they're teaching me this or like I like their company because xyz It's not just random haphazard Circumstantial proximity that led me to this book or led me to this friendship. Yes Be open-minded a little bit, but you need some sort of structure to have something to look for or else you're going to be just like a leaf in the wind floating, you know, as Emerson is saying, your opinions are going to change, your temperament's going to alter with the news of the day. And I think it's very detrimental, especially if you look at the dominant narrative of society, you turn on social media, you turn on the news, 98% of it is detrimental in nature. It is, is, mm-hmm. it is damaging. It is coming from a place of fear, of lack, of scarcity. It's never empowering. It's very limiting. It's very disempowering. Um, so I think we should all live in, in solitude. He actually has a line in the concluding paragraph or something of it. He says, isolation precedes society. I think it's a very yeah. powerful line.
0: Well, and I think it's important to also to to distinguish. I, I, I don't think he necessarily means solitude in a sense that like we have to go and live like Thoreau for a year or mm-hmm. we have to just like go Please. and live in a cave for a year. Solitude could even be like, I'm not gonna turn on the news in the morning while I'm brushing my teeth, and just right. carve out that like two minutes yeah. to just yeah. be alone with my own thoughts. Exactly, um, because I think that's that's super important. Mm-hmm. I, I know for me, I used to be, uh, I used to kind of be of the mindset that like I need to constantly be like utilizing every minute of the day, and like you know, mm-hmm. if I'm doing dishes, then I need to be listening to a podcast, mm-hmm. and if I'm commuting, I need to be reading. Um, but yeah, I've moved much more away from that in the sense that like, there is something very natural and useful about just letting your mind wander or having some time to be bored. I mean, I know that's something that, uh, you know, no, like with our, our smartphones, it's very hard to be bored. You know, it used to be that if you were waiting in line at the bank, you would just wait in line and like <laughs> your mind would wander right. and maybe you would think up a you know mm-hmm. a business plan or something but yeah. now it's like okay i've got five minutes to wait in this line i'm going to check my email consume gonna, consume,
1: consume. consume. Yeah.
0: yeah so i think yeah solitude doesn't necessarily have to be you know go into the woods and uh, uh right. not be a part of society it can just mean yeah. like living more deliberately i i guess
1: as well yeah. Yeah, I look at that process as like symbolic to represent the value of like what meditation has done for me, for example. So Mm -hmm. I look at I look at it as a metaphor as imagine yourself going out in the day. Just think of the literally thousands and thousands of different opinions you're subject to most of the time involuntarily. Um, like you'll hear a ad ad on the news or you'll hear an ad on the, on your radio or even uh, something on Spotify or Pandora, whatever it's the ad. Just You're not, you didn't choose to be subjected to that information, but like, it was just inundated at you. You were yeah. blasted. Um, or it's someone complaining at your job or your work or coworker, or someone calls you or someone texts you or someone sends you a message on Instagram, all of this information. I look at this to symbolically, symbolically to represent, like, think of, When you're in solitude, when you are sitting by yourself, when you're letting your mind wander, as you're saying, you're standing in line at the bank. You don't have to be in the void. Just like sitting with your own thoughts. Look at that as like the bottom of the ocean floor and all of the sand. Like if you struck the bottom of the ocean floor, obviously there's not as much current. It's not as as frequent down there. So a lot of it is like just dissipating and floating around. It's just Mm. all noise, opinions, opinions, uh, information. Some of it's relevant. A lot of it's irrelevant. Some of it's facts. A lot of it is nonsense. And like when you sit to wander a lot of you give yourself to time to de-permeate and it just like settles in and you can say okay this is fact. this is a principle this is what i believe i can actually hear my own voice and it's no longer drowned out with this sea of information i can look at what where my voice is what i believe and then i can act on that i can follow that thread and wherever that goes i always notice if i fall behind on my habit of meditation for example I'll find my mind becoming a lot more erratic in my thinking processes. Mm. It'll, it'll jump like from dot to dot a lot faster. Like, like these grains of sand, it'll just be very erratic. It's not, it'll be very inconsistent. Um, and it's not very conclusive. It's just, these thoughts are just very, they're dead ends. They're just like, Oh, go here, go here, go here, go here. And then I can feel when I need to meditate, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I can relate to that as well. It's, it's more of like, um, the the way i think about meditation it's it's i notice when i don't do it it's it's not like <laughs> i i notice when i do do it i notice exactly. when i don't do it
1: exactly because Good yeah
0: point. when i don't do it you know like you said it's like everything mm. is just moving faster mm. and this this idea of you know emerson doesn't use the word meditation but he talks a lot about uh what some people i think could could describe as meditation because um, he talks a lot about connecting with his inner conscience with his, his inner uh, his inner voice and he, he has this this quote I really liked he says I like the silent church before the service begins better than any preaching mm-hmm. and he talks a lot of, in this essay about intuition and a lot of what he talks about as God, um, is this kind of inner voice, is this this divine inspiration that he believes comes to us in these flashes of insight, and yeah, I think that's a really it, it's a kind of Platonic idea. I, I was watching a, a documentary about Emerson, and I, I know he was very influenced by Plato and this is one one of those areas where you can kind of see their ideas overlapping a bit and that he he believed that divine divine inspiration or divine insight that is the the kind of truest thing in the world and that that's where we should be looking for everything from what should i do with my life to how should i live to he even says like what is right and what is wrong mm-hmm. um and I think there's a, a passage in here where he says something along the lines of uh what is right is what is in accordance with my inner constitution and what is wrong yeah. is is what is not um so I don't know i i i th- this is one of those ideas where I feel like I can go with him about halfway, but mm-hmm. I kind of maybe get off the train mm-hmm. when it gets super far because one of one of the uh i guess counter arguments to to this kind of philosophy is he he brings it up in the passage one of his friends says um and maybe i'll read the quote his friend says something along the lines of well what if your kind of inner voice is telling you to do something bad or uh or kind of devil-like i think He, he says um My friend suggested, but these impulses may be from below, not from below, not from above. I replied, they do not seem to me to be such. But if I am the devil's child, I will live then from the devil. (laughs) So, so he's kind of saying there, like, all right, well, even if, even if this kind of inner voice, these, (laughs) this, these impulses are telling me something, uh, evil, like I'm still going yeah. to follow that. So I don't know. I, I, that's maybe a little, where a I, well, a yeah, well, it makes me think of sociopaths as well, because, right. uh, you know, I wonder like a psychopath or, or sociopath, mm-hmm. you know, if they're, they're kind of doing what is in accordance with what their inner voice right. is telling them, right. like it might be telling them murder that yeah. person, yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. So I don't know. It sounds like Emerson would say, well, That's your truth, man. Like, go do it. Go do it, bro. Um, And maybe not. I mean, he's not here to defend himself. But that's that's kind of how I read that passage. Is is? Did you read it similarly? That he's kind of saying. I
1: had a um, what? I was going to say what page? I have a different version. Yeah, I I remember reading something of that. Um, Okay, good and bad are but names. Mm -hmm. Very readily transferable to that or this. The only right is what I, what is after my constitution. The only wrong is what is against it. A man is to... I, li- I really like this line. A man is to carry himself in the presence of all opposition as if everything were titular and ephemeral, ephemeral but he... Um, I must have read over the, the whole, like, oh, it's, it, it, if I have malevolent ideologies, it's an extension of the devil, so be it. I'm still living consistently with my nature, so I'm 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 fine i'm still a noble individual um if if that's the way i read it or if that's the way i saw it on paper i would disagree with it very heavily because like you said it's very at what level do you draw some sort of another threshold? You have to have mm. some sort of a threshold or some sort of justification um, on like an ethical or moral obligation to other people as well. You can't just say like, oh, it's consistent with my nature, therefore I acted on it. Like again, right. very sociopathic, very slippery slope. Um, but I, I get I get the intention behind like good and bad. It's like inherently rejecting um, like unexamined moral. Systems, right? Mm. So it's like a very Nietzschean idea. Like I'm, I'm behind him with that. Um, with with like yes, adhering to your constitution, um, denying anything that is discordant with it. Um, I'm with him on that, but I wouldn't take it similarly with you. I wouldn't take that train <laughs> that far. I would not. I would yeah, not come
0: to, down that Down that line. Well, and I think it's a it's a fine line because yeah, a lot of what he is. Saying, you know, when this comes to ethics, is he is he is saying, you know, what is right is what is in accordance with my constitution. What is wrong is, is and you know, I think that's fine if your constitution is in check. But, uh you know, what if it's not, or what if there are conflicts? And I, and I mean, I think that is yeah. a lot of where morality kind of comes into play. Yeah, yeah. Is that there used to be an asterisk
1: at the end of that sentence, <laughs> and saying assuming you have these needs met. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. right. Yeah. Assuming you're not a psychopath. And, yeah. Exactly. Uh,
1: <sighs> yeah. If that's a side, I agree with him with the whole con- like, yeah, adhere to your your con- uh, conscience.
0: Yeah. yeah. But I wanted to ask a question. So this is just something I, I thought of. And this may be getting off Emerson a little bit. But so at one point he asks or at, at one point he says, you know, we should be less concerned with what others think of us and act more in accordance with our true selves all right and just to be devil's advocate what if you are your true self and everybody hates that true self like it is just not a fun person to be around you have trouble meeting friends because nobody likes that true self like i don't know what do you what do you think emerson would say to to that Mm
1: i think it would be i think he would double down and just use to, to use his idea earlier of like the extrapolation of like if if my deeds are born of the devil i'm an extension of the devil whatever that mm-hmm. line was i think he would double down on that and i would still I, I would still estimate that he i'm also probably on the same line of thinking of as him i kind of agree with the sense of like internal validation it's like it's like exponentially more potent than external validation Internal is a lot more powerful than external. So even if you could change your behavior a little bit to have people like you Even admire you appreciate you even overtly At at cost of yourself at cost of consistency and authenticity to yourself mm. I don't think that'd be worth it personally personally, but yeah. I, I mean I, this could be uh, Idiosyncratic temperamental variable, you know, I'm I'm very comfortable in solitude. I don't have many um, Friends that I frequently see I'm I very much spent a lot of my time alone. So for me, That's always the prioritization is like internal validation. What can I do to make sure I'm straight? And it's like, once that's set, I can then hang around other people and be sure that I'm actually present and I'm not manipulating conversations for me to get attention. Right.
0: Right. Right. Well, yeah, I I like that. And that, you know, it's, it's ultimately going to be more fulfilling to have that Come within you, than, than to try to seek it externally, and that's actually kind of how he ends the essay by saying, "You know, if you're trying to attain happiness from something external, like it's just a failed nothing can bring
1: you peace but yourself." Yeah, I think exactly. It's a triumph of principles. Right, right. Mm.
0: Yeah, so I, I think you're right. I think that is that is what he would would say to that. Um, so, were there any any more ideas that you wanted to get into that we we didn't really touch on?
1: Um, one more, yeah. and then I'll, I'll conclude with a quote after I, that made me think about I think it's a good encapsulation of the whole essay, the quote I'll give after. It's from Nietzsche, yeah. of course. Um, but there's an idea. It was toward the end of the – it's probably two or three pages back. Uh, he's talking about traveling. Traveling mm. is a fool's paradise. And he's almost – it almost sounded like he didn't like traveling. He was kind of – has a condescending <laughs> attitude toward it. I got his intention of – Essentially, to summarize my, my interpretation, he's saying, like, if you're using it as a means of diversion, that's not effective. It's dangerous. He's saying he gives the example like at home. I dream that I am at Naples um, at Rome. I can be intoxicated with beauty and lose my sadness. I pack my trunk, embrace my friends embark in the sea. And at last, wake up in Naples. And there beside me is the stern fact, the sad self, unrelenting, identical that I fled from. So I think it's important to ask why you're. Um, I guess, traveling while you're doing things to, to, are, are you moving to escape from your everyday circumstances or are you, are you moving from a different intention? And that kind of brought up the question, like what should be the proper motivation behind travel? I guess that's a question I kind of had.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm personally, I'm for travel. I, I, no, for sure, his for point, sure. his point is noted. I, I get the point that if you're doing it, as an escapism as a way of not dealing with your pain that is bad but i think you learn so much about yourself from traveling and also i think one of the reasons you you do this is maybe a bit of a tangent but one of the reasons i think we learn so much about ourselves when we travel is because nobody knows us so Mm -hmm. we are able to just show up at this new place and be Mm -hmm. our authentic selves we don't have to kind of like slip back into these roles Mm -hmm. of like Oh well, right. I'm hanging out with my high school buddy again, and right. he's going to expect me to. Because I think we do this a lot. We, yeah, we kind of turn into what we think the other person
1: thinks oh, yeah. we we are. You ever introduced two different friend groups to one another? Yeah, and You notice the, like weird internal like discordance. Like yeah, that's yeah, what that is. You know, I've I, noticed that myself too. Yeah. You're trying to, you're trying to upkeep like two different personalities. You're like, wait, what am I doing?
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that that's what we were talking about earlier. That there's, it's when you notice there's a bit of a, an incongruency. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I actually did this maybe four years ago or something. I threw a party and I introduced like, it's like my sister was there and like some of my family and then like my kind of music friends and then kind of like my nerdy, book friends. Yeah. And yeah, it is interesting to like watch yourself in that situation because it's like oh, yeah. you don't almost don't know who to be mm-hmm. in a in yeah. a in a certain kind yeah. of exercise and you're trying you're like,
1: trying to moderate like the gap and the bridge between the two. You're trying to mm-hmm. find some commonality between like this group, this group, here's the expectations of this group, here's the interests of this group, generally speaking, and like here has how to bridge this gap. So yeah, I know what you mean. So
0: do you think Thoreau would say you should try to get to a place where you can be 100% authentically you in all of those situations. Or did Good I say question. Thoreau? I meant Emerson. You did say Thoreau, but I, I meant.
1: Yeah, i I would probably think so. I think that's the like ideal. Now, mm-hmm. do I think it's practically attainable? Not really. I yeah. don't think so because of the overlap that you have with people. Like you, you. I think encouraging one side of your behavior to come out more than others, that's not fabricating an image. That's just you knowing one side of me. Like you're saying, like the book club friends. Like I like I meet a lot of people in the intellectual realm of my life and like I might not have a lot of other things in common with them. And just because I'm my I'm my intellectual persona when I'm with them, I don't think that's fabricating. I think it maybe it's a partial view of me, Mm. but that makes things More like it makes things run more smoothly and it makes things more enjoyable for both parties. So, if I was just like suddenly the entire constituents of my character in front of them, it'd be like, That's that's, that's irrelevant. I don't like that. I don't care about that. I don't, you know, so I don't think I don't look at that as fabricating. I look at that as just like selectively showing people parts of yourself. I don't think that's inherently bad.
0: Well, yeah. And it's there's also the element that like certain people bring out different parts of your personality and to call right right. so yeah i don't necessarily think that like you know when i'm with these certain friends they kind of bring out this like goofy side Mm -hmm. of me and when i'm Mm -hmm. with these friends they kind of bring out this like serious intellectual side of Mm me Mm -hmm. and i wouldn't say either of those is a false persona they're just different aspects of myself that are kind of like yeah it's like an artist bringing out different colors in a in a painting or something
1: yeah, um, and to just dis- and to dispense with all of that and be, you know, consistent in all. Like you would, I don't even know how how one interact. That would mean one interaction would be the, the the precedent for all other interactions. You know, I don't really understand how that would even work. Mm. Like you're treating a, yeah. a family member the same as the person you know from the gym, as the same person you know from high school, as the same person. you That's you can't do it consistently all, all across all all relationships like that. I don't think it worked. Right.
0: Right. Which again, kind of comes back to like, there's not maybe, there's maybe not like one true self. There's, yeah, or there is one true self, but it's like, you know, certain people or certain circumstances can bring out different aspects of it.
1: Right. And, that, and I think this, this actually reminds me of like, this is probably why it's like, since this is so like convoluted, um, why such practical, like Rules of life can speak so to help like when peterson says this is just came up from memory Uh, tell the truth or at least don't lie Mm. Like tell the truth. You might not know the truth You might not have a comprehensive view of what you're talking about You it might be like in the process of being formulated and that's all fine But you at least know when you're deliberately being deceitful. don't do that. Yeah, you know when you're doing that Like don't fabricate an image don't over exaggerate your competence Don't do these things because you know that's wrong and you know, you have to sit with that
0: that's a good point. And that it's, it's sometimes easier to be able to tell something that you don't like, or it's it's easier right. to tell something that is not you. It's easier to like, you know, try a new hobby and just be like, mm-hmm. that shit ain't for me. Ain't it, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah then it is Some sometimes it's easier to kind of go on that process of elimination than oh, it yeah. is to say, like, I am meant to be a carpenter or whatever the I thing agree. is. I um, agree. Yeah. And and I think that's probably true with your, you know, kind of the like be yourself or whatever. It's like, we might not know who ourself is, but we can kind of pay attention when we're doing something that feels inauthentic and kind of key in on that and be like, Oh yeah, I'm like really smiling and like acting like this kind of like cheese ball. And like, that's not me there's some quote in here. i loved. love he, he talked. he said it was like, um, I forget the word he used, but he was just talking about how horrible it is to see somebody who is like, um, using like a really fake smile at a party. Mm. Emerson did. Um, so yeah, you might kind of key in and be like, okay, well, yeah, maybe I don't know who my true self is, but I know that this like schmaltzy, like, Whatever this is, <laughs> yeah, is not me, yeah. yeah, this fucking yeah. guy right here, like, no.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah and we've all been in conversations like that where we'll say something yeah. or we're just like being like stupid small talk we'll force ourselves to have conversations. you're just like i don't care about this yeah it's not me right yeah we've all been there right
0: yeah and it's hard i mean it, i think it takes effort to to not fall into those roles mm-hmm. oh
1: yeah mm-hmm.
0: well cool man uh do, oh you had a a quote i, I want to quote yeah. yes
1: so it, it captures a lot of themes uh, from this this entire work, which is very prolific, by the way. There's 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 so many more ideas that we could go on and just on, but it's a good encapsulation of like what we talked about. I think. Yeah. Um, and this is this is a quote uh, from Nietzsche, where he says, "No one can build you the bridge on which you and only you must cross the river of life. There may be countless trails and bridges and demigods who would gladly carry you across." but only at the price of pawning and foregoing yourself. There is one path in the world that none but you can walk. Do not ask where it leads. Walk.
0: Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or scroll down, write us a review, or give us a five-star rating. All of that helps tremendously, so thanks in advance uh next week we're going to be doing of anger by seneca so if you like to read along that's what we'll be doing and if you'd like to get in touch with me you can do that by visiting zachstahura.com that's z-a-c-h-s-t-e-h-u-r-a and if you'd like to get in touch with my guest and hear more from him head over to xenotheory.org that's x-e-n-o theory.org uh xeno theory provides young men in the midst of psychological obstacles with the tools to build an empowered life to be proud of uh so john's doing all kinds of great work over there i encourage you to check it out all right we'll see you next episode